Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. The topic for this episode was inspired by a couple of you emailing in to ask for a deep dive into investment trust discounts, including how to spot a good opportunity and how to avoid a discount that will remain in the wilderness. To help me tackle this, I'm joined by James Carfew, co-founder and head of investment company research at Quoted Data. James is with me in our London studio, but before I pass the baton to him, the first thing to point out is that while investment trust discounts offer opportunities to buy a basket of investments for less than the sum of their parts, over the long term, it's the performance of those underlying investments that has the biggest influence on the overall total shareholder returns. To put simply, if the investment trust doesn't perform well, it's likely to have a consistently high discount due to a lack of demand for its shares. Another important thing to bear in mind with investment trust discounts is that they typically have a greater tendency to converge to their mean discount rather than the value of their underlying investments. Therefore, and of course, past performance, it's no guide to the future. It's useful to consider the current discount versus its history and take a view over one, three and five years, for example. It's also worth comparing an investment trust discount with its wider sector. So James, what are the other things that investors should be bearing in mind when sizing up an investment trust discount? You've covered a lot of ground there. I think you've covered the main points. I suppose the things that make discounts move rather suddenly, you may get some kind of corporate action. So the beauty of investment companies is you've got a board there sitting there working for you and trying to make sure things like the discounts don't get too wide and they do something about it. So what we've seen recently in the last few months is a number of funds that have been languishing on big discounts have suddenly jumped because they've seen the board say, let's merge with somebody else or let's hand this over to a new manager or let's just wind the fund up altogether. So those things can make a big difference in a very short space of time, but they are few and far between, so don't rely on them. So the big question really with investment trust discounts is how can an investor assess a genuine potential buying opportunity over a discount that is cheap for a very good reason and therefore it's best perhaps to steer clear? What are your thoughts on that? Although we always say don't look at past performance, <laughs> the first thing I do is I think the first thing most investors do. If you think about uh, what's been going on the last um, year or so, a lot of the change that's happened, a lot of the discounts widening has happened, has happened because interest rates have started going up, and that's changed the investment landscape for a, a whole range of different things. So you've had a lot more options to give you income now, for example. So that has moved the dial. But if rates are peaking, then we could see an end to that and, and sort of more sort of firmer footing for these things. So I think... If you go back and look at things and say, how have they done over 10 years? How have they done over five years? If they don't look too bad on that level and they just look bad over the past year, you might be a sign that this is something that's just temporary out of favour that, that could come back again. Because with discounts, if the performance improves, you get the sort of double whammy, don't you, of improved performance and then also the discount narrowing. Could you explain how you do get this double whammy? Well, I mean, um, yeah, really, really good examples. And you've, you've got... Things like the two to one going the wrong way. You know, things like uh, Linsel Train was the famous one that traded on a huge premium to asset value for a long, long time, and we kept saying this is not sustainable. Don't buy it. But a lot of people kept on buying it, and then eventually the performance tailed off, and then suddenly it starts going from a premium down to a discount, 
And then as people see the share price falling, then they think, oh, something's wrong with this, so they sell. And it just feeds on itself. And you get this kind of vicious spiral downwards. That can work the other way. It doesn't tend to be quite as dramatic, but it's sort of a long, slow haul. But when people look at this something and think, this is doing okay now, I'll go back in, they help drive the discount down again. So, um, yeah, it, it can be a double whammy. And sometimes these discounts can move by quite a lot, and that's really quite valuable. And in terms of investment trust premiums, I mean, there's not that many of them at the moment. As a rule of thumb, would you say if a premium's over 5%, that's when you should potentially wait for a better opportunity? I would have a, yeah, really have a close look at it before you think about buying something on more than about 5 premium, yeah. And going back to investment trust discounts, so across the market, the average discount at the moment is around 15%. One way in which a board can attempt to tackle its discount is through buying back its own shares. How much store do you set by that? Well, I mean, in theory, if they're aggressive enough about it, then that, that will just close the discount down completely. So you just take out all the sellers in the market, and, and if there are no more sellers, then the, then the share price will go rattling up. Reality, though, it, that's really beyond the, the um, ability of most trusts to do that. So you're mostly talking about them trying to, rather than trying to narrow a discount down, most of the time they're just trying to moderate the volatility in it. Because as you said at the beginning, most of the time you're, you're trying to get back down to, to where the average was, the long-term average was, rather than get down to asset value. Do you have the intent of those uh, board there buying back stock and, and taking out the, um, the overhangs in the market? That, that can make a real difference. But there's different ways of doing that. You can just buy back shares every day. Some trusts do that. You can hang around and wait for big lines to appear on uh, stock on the market and then just snap those up. Some funds do much more structured uh, corporate things like tender offers where they just say, we will buy 25%, up to 25% of the company at this discount. Um, and that can make a big, big difference too. So if it was an investment trust trading on a wider than usual discount, but the board wasn't buying back its own shares, would that put you off? Would you think, actually, there's not actually much scope at the moment for that discount to narrow? Actually, that might be a buying opportunity because it might be that somebody comes along and forces them to do it. So it could, could actually be a bargain. Quite often, though, you've got funds that have got quite illiquid underlying investments which is the whole point of the structure. So the investment company structure is ideal for things to hold things that aren't very liquid. So things like property and private equity, leasing funds, all these sorts of things where you can't just turn it into cash very quickly, which you can't do in an open-ended fund. You can't, it doesn't really work, but you can in a closed-end fund. But the quid pro quo of that is if you've got these illiquid underlying investments, it's not easy for them to, to raise the cash to buy the shares back. Uh, so that's a, a more awkward proposition, if you like. So that perhaps explains why some private equity investment trusts at the moment, they haven't been proactively buying back their own shares, despite the fact they're on historically wide discounts. It is often possible to sell chunks of private equity investments. You can sell them what they call secondary transactions, sometimes at asset value, sometimes at quite small discounts. It is possible to do that. And I think it is reasonable for most funds out there to be able to sell a slice of, of what they own and, and and go and buy shares back. But it's not possible to do that tomorrow. It's something that's got to be planned and thought about. It might take months to, to execute. I suppose it's also important to note that, you know, share buybacks, they're no panacea. You know, it won't necessarily narrow the discounts. And as mentioned at the beginning, you need to see the improved performance at the net asset value level. So let's move on to investment trust discount opportunities at the moment. So as mentioned, the average investment 
company. It's on a, a discount in the mid-teens. And as James mentioned, a lot of this is due, is due to the fact that um, we're now in this potential higher for longer interest rate environment. James, I'm going to ask you to put your neck on the line here and could you run through some sectors and potentially some investment trusts within those sectors that you think are looking potentially good discount opportunities at the moment? I'm going to, yeah, definitely put Nike on the line because I think a lot of the funds I'm going to mention now, you're all going to sit there and think, that's awful. That's been, that's been awful. I don't want to touch it. Uh, and I'm going to start with Scottish Mortgage, um, which is the fund that everybody loved uh, two years ago. It was growing and growing and the performance was amazing, best performing fund in the sector and it raised huge amounts of money. Um, and then it's massively disappointed. That's now trading on about a 17 and a half discount, something like that. Um, and if its performance stabilizes and starts to improve, I think that discount will cl- will close. Uh, it's a it's a long, slow process. It's not the sort of thing that's going to happen tomorrow. It's, it's probably not the sort of fund where anybody's going to force it to happen either. Uh, it has got an element of unlisted stuff in there, which uh, does affect things at the moment. Um, and the, the sentiment turning towards the, those sort of private uh, equity unlisted type opportunities, that's going to be the big driver for discount narrowing because that's where a lot of the problem has been. But I can I can see things coming right for Scottish Mortgage at some point, whether it's this year or next year. I can't tell you. It's basically what I'm saying is, for, for almost all of these things, these are long term investments. But this, but in, over the long term, this is not a bad buying opportunity for something like that. So that's that's in the global sector. There are a couple of others in there. They tend to be actually mostly the Bailey Gifford type ones. The sister fund has got monks. Uh, is on a much narrower scale, like thirteen, something like that. Uh, but it's a more steady eddy fund, and and I would that would normally be trading about eight. So you might go, well, that's not a massive uplift, but but you couple that with improved performance, and yeah, it's a nice to have. So that's that. Um, you think about other sort of big global funds. One of the ones that was again really popular and is now um, almost university disliked it feels sometimes is RIT Capital. Uh, I think that's a great fund run by really good, clever managers, but they haven't succeeded uh, recently because they, they've got this, a lot of illiquid underlying stuff there, including some private equity stuff. And some of that private equity stuff is kind of growth focused. And again, that's the sort of thing that hasn't really worked with the higher interest rates. But you could see that swing back in the other direction. And here you've got a possibility, because a couple of analysts have said this already, that they've, they've got some things they've sort of been cooking in their private equity book for a while that might be ready to uh, be harvested, if you like, to, to IPO or get taken over. or And that can uh, simultaneously drive the NEV higher because they tend to be quite conservative with the way they value these things um, and improve the sentiment. And, and then that, that discount could come down as well. So, again, another one that might be quite interesting. But there are, there are more extreme examples of that. So you talked about private equity already. Um, I'd highlight something like the Aberdeen Private Equity, private equity Opportunities Fund, which is trading on a 40-plus discount. When you get some numbers like 40-plus, the, the upside you've got from a closing a discount is, is enormous. Well, I mean, if, it's, if something's trading on a 33 discount, then if it goes back to trading asset value, that's 50% upside. That's the way maths works. So closing on a 40% discount is very significant. Again, if we're talking about mean reversion, it's not going back to asset value, but it could go back to 20s quite easily. And that is a very broadly diversified, sensibly managed fund 
uh, with some investments in other managers' funds and some investments direct in um, private equity stuff. And there's plenty more examples. I mean, uh, probably the biggest change that we've seen over the past few years has been the hit to renewables and infrastructure because they were really the darlings. They were just always trading premiums, always raking in money, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And for a good reason, because they, you know, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of money that needs to be invested in infrastructure, needs to be invested in renewables. And that need hasn't gone away at all. But again, because the interest rates started going up, people started saying, well, are they valuing those assets properly? And is the NAV going to fall? And this, I suppose, is the biggest question when it comes to looking at discounts. Is like, a discount looks big, but is the NAV right? Um, I think when this whole process started, there was a reasonable question about whether what was going to happen to the valuations of private equity and renewables and stuff like that. But we're now a long way into this, and they've been revalued several times. The Scottish mortgage, for example, revalues the whole portfolio every three months, uh, not all at the same time, on a kind of rolling basis. Some of the other ones are a little bit older, but even the, the, the oldest ones, the value won't be back beyond December um 22 so you you you're basically looking at something where the, the market's actually got a bit better since then um and that's not reflected in the in the nurse so renewables i think is definitely an interesting area um and you can pull out all sorts of examples there's there's one that i've been talking about recently which is a, a tiny one which is ecofin us renewables where they had a very specific accident so basically they they've got a, a wind farm that generates almost half the power they produce and uh, it got knocked offline by a tornado. There's absolutely nothing they could have done about that. It's going to be a hit to its income, uh, and their share price dived. But just on the maths, the income hit is about $2 million, and the hit to the market cap is about $12, $13, 14000000 million. It's clearly fallen far too far, and it was cheap to begin with. But if you want to sort of bigger sort of more sensible opportunity maybe something like um next energy solar which is a fairly big fund again not doing anything difficult or you know um hard hard to get your head around it's now trading an almost a nine percent yield and a teen high teens discount and that doesn't stack up to me it doesn't make any sense why that would be the case so and, you know, if you've got a nice yield to, to collect while you're waiting for the discount to narrow, I think that's a big tick in the box. I recently interviewed um, Stephen Lilly of Greencoat UK Winds. You can check out that video interview on our YouTube channel. And, you know, he pointed out that, you know, the trust has been operating for over 10 years. And for most of that period, it's been trading on a premium. But now it's on a discount of over 10% at the moment. You know, he was arguing the case that he thinks now is actually a good opportunity given that you know the underlying assets in his view are conservatively valued so he thinks this sort of interest rate pain that's happened which has negatively impacted its share price and the valuations has been overdone in terms of um sectors of the market that you're more wary on James what would you point out as potentially being you know a sector that's trading on a big discount but it's in the price it, you know it looks like it deserves to be on that discount I think the property sectors are mixed bag. So some of them are probably too cheap. Some of them, the NAVs are still coming down. What you've got more in that sector is more debt 
and obviously the cost of debt's been rising and that puts strain on balance sheets. You've also got question marks around uh, what the value of office portfolios is, for example, because like, are people really going to come back to the office? Do we need as much space? And what will that do to rents? I mean, it, some sectors, I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, one of the ones that is still in big demand, got very low vacancy, is logistics. So um, those kind of big shed warehouses you see by the motorway. There's massive demand for those because people are buying more online and, you know, also because people are thinking, we had all that problem with trying to get goods out of China. I want to manufacture stuff closer to home. So that's this sort of inshoring, they call it, or reshoring. Um, that, that, there's a big driver for space as well. So I, I think there you, you've got rental uplift and that's rental uplift helps drive the NEVs up even when the discount rates, which is basically a lot of these funds are valued on uh, discounted cash flow. So you, you take the, the forecast cash flows going out and then you discount them back on a rate that's sort of linked to where interest rates are. So as that's been going up, then the value of the fund's been going down. But if you've got rental growth offsetting that, then you know maybe the NEV falls won't be as much as people are expecting to be. The one sort of big, another fund that everybody hates, triple point social housing. I mentioned that one because it's on still on like a 52, 53 discount. It's a really wide discount, but that was as wide as 60. Uh, and it was as wide as 60, even when Civitas, which is an identical fund, got taken over for we what we thought was way too cheap a price, but no, it got taken over on about a 27 discount, something like that. This is this fund is really is identical. A lot of the same tenants, a lot of the same, you know, very similar structure. I think that one might be interesting, but again, that that's a riskier one maybe because the the, the whole problem with that, or for a long time, has been people can't get head, their heads around how that fund works. So, um, but I I do think it you sort of take a big picture look at it. You need the specialist supporting housing that it, it provides, uh, and the government is paying for that in the end. So um, I do think that business model is probably okay, but the mechanics of it maybe need tweaking. So there we go. I mean, there are a number of funds, and actually there are quite a lot of them in the overseas property sector, but but not just there, across the whole universe, that are in kind of runoff mode. And a lot of those look like they're on huge discounts. So 60s, 70s, some of them. There you're getting into the funds that are cheap for a reason, because they they are struggling to sell off stuff, and they're not going to be may not be able to realise the NEV that they they've got in the in the books. There there may be debt problems there too. There, there's definitely management problems. There's there's all sorts of things there. So when you're looking at very small funds on big discounts, I'd be much more wary. And the final point to make with discounts is that um, some investment trusts have discount control mechanisms or. Um, zero discount control mechanisms, um, such as capital gearing, which is obviously a rival to RIT capital partners. What's your thoughts on those approaches, James? They only work where you've got a very liquid underlying portfolio. So we are into the realms now of, does it really make sense for this to be a closed-end fund or not? Or should it just be an open-ended fund? Because if you if you can turn the portfolio into cash, really quickly so you can run this sort of zero discount mechanism what's the, what's the point of it being a closed-end fund there are angles around that if you're doing 
uh, borrowing money, gearing, or, or maybe if you're using derivatives and things, it might make sense. But nevertheless, um, I don't think that those zero discount kind of things, they, they don't work for most funds. There's only a, a handful of them where they do. And they're brilliant when they do, because they do let the funds sort of like, you know, got, um, expand and contract quite quickly. James, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. My thanks to James, and thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. And if you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions, and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interact Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.